Let us hear God's word from Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, I want us to think of a couple uh, everyday things. And that is when you walk into the bathroom or your bedroom or something and you see the mirror there and you look into the mirror, what is the mirror saying? What is its function? What is its purpose? Now, if you say, well, the mirror told me I need to lose weight, that's actually not true. If the mirror says that your hair is gray and you're getting old, the mirror is not actually telling us to do anything. All it is doing is reflecting what comes before it. It has one basic job, and that is to reflect. Now, we might take that reflection and come to certain conclusions about how we should then behave, either change or whatever, but it's only reflecting. The same can be said for the scale in our bathroom or bedroom. It has one primary job, and that is to tell you how much weight is on the scale. It's not telling you to lose weight or gain weight or change your eating habits. It is just telling you a number. Well, in a similar sense, then, the law uh, that God has given has one basic function. It's one basic thing is to say, this is what is righteous, and you're not. Now, with this in mind, let's now come here to the end of this section that Paul has given to us. Last time we looked at the final chained link in Paul's list of citations, the last pearl, if you will, of Old Testament passages. And he uses it, especially this idea of not fearing God, he uses it to prove his point in a kind of final way that none of us are righteous, that we are imperfect, and that there is nothing we can do, nothing at all, to cause God to bless us. And so whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, a Christian or a non-Christian, white or black, Republican or Democrat, a citizen or a legal immigrant, whatever contrast you want to establish, all people have failed to keep God's standard 
and have turned away from him. Even those of us who come to church, even those of us who seek and strive unto righteousness. And so verse 18, in many ways, is the culmination of everything he has said. Because we do not fear God, that's why everything else he has talked about takes place. And so chapter 3, verse 18, is really the end of chapter 1, verse 18, up till this point. Now, you may recall last time I added another pearl. And it was a pearl that I was trying to decide where to add along the way, because Paul has been talking about the law of God, the law of Moses, in different ways, either directly or indirectly. And so I decided to do it here last week, and we briefly reviewed the Ten Commandments and heard the message of condemnation. The message of the law is, here's the standard, and you're not keeping it. And so Paul here now, in verses 19 and 20, are giving us uh, some concluding thoughts here in this whole argument. So verse 19 then. For we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, first of all, notice that the word law is used twice here in this verse. The word law is used two more times in the next verse. And so obviously Paul has in mind the law of God as he summarizes and brings together everything that he has said. And first he says, those under the law would refer to the Jews, okay, those who have been given the law. Okay, he had just quoted the Old Testament, right? And so the focus here is on those who had received it. And so we know that whatever the law says, right, what I've just quoted, among other things, is speaking to those who had received the law. Okay, now, notice, though, Paul did not quote from the law of Moses. He quoted from the Psalms. He quoted from Isaiah. Now, I added some things, looked at some other passages that also are from various places in the Old Testament. We added the Ten Commandments last week and so forth. But Paul here is referring to all the Old Testament, not just Genesis to Deuteronomy, not just Exodus 19 to 24, or the book of Deuteronomy, or whatever. He's referring to all the Old Testament. And the Old Testament very clearly is speaking to those who had received it. And so whatever the Old Testament says, it is speaking to Israel. That's his initial point here. Now, by extension, of course, we have the Old Testament too. In fact, we have all the scriptures. And so for the believer, for us, the Christian even, the scripture is still saying the same thing. The law, all the scripture, is speaking to those who have received it. And so it's speaking to the church too. And what is that message? What is the law saying? Well, it's saying that every mouth needs to be closed. Every mouth needs to be stopped. And the whole world is guilty. This is what the law is saying. This is what the scripture is saying. And and we then have nothing to say. We have no opportunity to respond. The message of God's word leaves us silent. And this is not only true for the obvious sinner, but also the nice person. 
even the godly saint, everyone, you, me, the mature Christian, all the way to the most wicked, we have no defense. We cannot stand before God, we cannot stand before his righteous law and give any word that would somehow change this idea that no one is righteous. There is nothing that we have ever said, ever done, ever thought that requires God to bless us and reward us. Even if we could say there was one or two things that were pretty good, they're still not perfect. And everything else is even less than that. Paul has said here that no one is righteous, no one seeks God, no one understands. He has told us that we are all slaves to sin and we do not want to be freed. He tells us, as we saw just last week, that we don't fear God, which ultimately what that means is we hate him. It's not indifference. It's an animus, an enmity. As Paul will say in Romans 5, we are enemies of God when he sent Christ. And so we hate him. We hate others. There are no exceptions to this. Not even you, not even me. Not one person can ever stand before our heavenly judge and say anything virtuous. There is no legitimate, connect, uh, excuse me, legitimate objection that can be raised. And it's not like we go before this judge and we try to make a case and, you know, it's kind of hard to decide what, what should be the verdict here. It's not even just a reasonable doubt. There's no doubt at all. We are not righteous. Now let's look at a few more pearls here in this way. Let's turn first to John chapter 8. You remember this specific situation here with the woman caught in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and ask what should be done. And in verse 7, note what he says. When they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And eventually, the uh, older and wiser started walking away, and eventually the young whippersnappers did too. Okay. And notice what he says right there in verse 10. Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, neither do I. And Jesus was the only one that has the right because he is righteous. None of us are. We are the same here. None of us are righteous. We cannot stand and really accuse anybody else because of our own sin. <clears throat> Let's turn then to Job chapter 40. You remember, of course, the story of Job and uh, God brought this judgment upon him uh, against his family and then against him uh, with the sores and so forth. Even his wife turned against him and so on. And uh, at first, Joab responded humbly. And then he started saying, well, you know, I really didn't deserve this. I didn't do anything to deserve these things. I've been righteous. And he 
continues this thought, and it seems to pick up in intensity, and eventually God shows up and says, Job, what are you talking about? And notice how Job responds. Job 40, verse 3, then Job answered to the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I'll proceed no further. I tried to stand before the righteous judge of the earth and say, I am innocent. This should not be happening to me. But Job finally came to his senses and said, I I can't say anything. I just put the hand over my mouth. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This, of course, is referring to Isaiah's vision of the Lord and uh, uh, the temple here. And you see uh, there in verse 1, the Lord on the throne, the seraphs there crying out, holy, holy, holy. And note then, verse 5, Isaiah speaks, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, when we stand before somebody else, we just let our tongues wag. But when we stand before God, we have nothing to say. Nothing at all. Our lips are unclean, right? They're dripping poison, as, as uh, Paul said in quoting uh, the Old Testament. Isaiah is saying the same thing. If we compare ourselves to uh, someone else, if we compare ourselves to a God that we have altered from the true God or to his law that we have changed, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We speak. We say things. But when we come before God himself, when we come before his law that has not been altered by us, there's nothing for us to say because we stand condemned. The law is speaking. Here's the standard, and you don't keep it. And so again, as we talked about last time, there is no fear of God before our eyes. And so our mouth needs to stay shut. Since this is true for God's people, right? The law is speaking to those under the law. Since this is true for God's people, how much more for those who haven't received the law? How much more for the person who's never been to church? If this is true of Job, and some have argued that he may have been Uh, you know, like in the top five of the most righteous people to have ever lived, as it were. Uh, If this is true of Isaiah, if this is true for God's people, it is certainly true for the unbeliever. And so therefore, every mouth, every mouth in the church, every mouth outside of it, the whole world is guilty, accountable for sin, worthy of judgment, liable for eternal punishment. And so whether we're talking about the Jew of the Old Testament, the Christian with all the scriptures, or anyone else who has the law of God written on their heart, the law condemns everyone. We see it's described for us here. We also see it in history, don't we? God providentially working this out. Everyone is held accountable. 
We see this in the created order. Okay? There is death and destruction everywhere. Okay? We have no excuses. We have no appeals. No one can make a claim that will not be thrown out of court. And it's because our prosecutor, which is the law of God, is perfect. And our judge is perfect. There's no defense attorney that can help us at all. Not O.J. Simpson's. Not Hunter Biden's. <laughs> no lawyer could ever get us off. And we all know this. Though we suppress it. And therefore ignore God and his standard and justify ourselves by changing God and changing his standard. We use faulty logic and evidence to twist the truth. Let me read here a moment from John Stott. And uh, he says this. In this way, every mouth is stopped, every excuse silenced. And the whole world, having been found guilty, is liable to God's judgment. These words evoke the picture of a defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because of the weight of the evidence which has been brought against him. There is nothing to wait for but the pronouncement of execution of the sentence. So this is the point to which the apostle has been relentlessly moving. The idolatrous and immoral Gentiles are without excuse, chapter 1. All critical moralists, whether Jews or Gentiles, equally have no excuse, chapter 2. The special status of the Jews does not exonerate them. In fact, all the inhabitants of the whole world, without any exception, are inexcusable before God. That is, under accusation, with no possibility of defense. And by now, the reason is plain. It is because all have known something of God and of morality through the scripture in the case of the Jews, through nature in the case of the Gentiles, but all have disregarded and even stifled their knowledge in order to go their own way. And so all are guilty and condemned before God. <clears throat> so I ask then again, as I have before, have you actually heard this message yet? Obviously, it's been repeated for the last several months. Have you yet heard it? Or are you still saying, yeah, but? Are you still saying, well, compared to that person over there, I do pretty well? Are you still saying, I, I'm not that bad, right? We have to hear this message if we're going to ever understand God's grace. And forever going to understand what it means to actually be righteous. And so here then is Paul's, if you will, final slap in the face, so to speak. Well, let's come back here to Romans 3. Because Paul does give us a little bit more here. Paul is telling us that the law is speaking, and it's speaking in such a way that we have nothing to say. But notice that he is telling us that the law has one basic purpose. Now, we can talk about different uses of the law and, and things like that, different kinds of law, and okay, that's fine. But ultimately, in the end, the law has one 
primary purpose and function. And that is to give us the standard and then to say, you don't meet it. The law cannot save anyone. Never could. Never will. Because the law is speaking for the purpose to silence us and to leave us condemned. And so when you read the Ten Commandments, and of course we did this last week, if you are not squirming, if you are not feeling awful about yourselves, then you haven't listened to it yet. Even as a true believer, even those of us who have been elected and converted, our hearts have been changed, we are going to heaven, we still have to hear the law say, here's the standard, you're not meeting it. It's always going to say that, at least until we get to heaven. This is the message. This is what it is doing. God gave us his law to show us our sin, even now. So let's then bring in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law has been given to speak. Its primary message is what I've said. And notice how Paul ends the verse here by saying, by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what it is doing. This is the understanding it gives. It cannot give the understanding of salvation. Because of our sinfulness. And so because this is true, now to the beginning of the verse, no one will be justified in his sight by the deeds of the law. No one can be declared righteous by law keeping because law points out our sin. Again, it's, it's, that's just not its job. That's not its function. <clears throat> now, some people have tried to take this to mean um, that Paul is only talking about the law of Moses. Others have tried to take this to mean that this is only talking about those unique things that set Jews apart from Gentiles, like circumcision or food laws or something like that. But as Paul is summarizing everything, he just said every mouth, he just said all the world, and now he says, no flesh. I don't think we can limit the law here. Ultimately, yes, we are talking about God's law. But can't we apply this to any law that we have? Think of the laws you have in your house. Okay? Put the dishes in the sink after you're done eating or whatever. You know, shut the door when you come in from outside. Turn the lights off when you leave the room. You know, whatever the law is, whether they are, if you will, common, simple, not all that significant laws, or those that are much more significant, the law is still the same. It's still speaking in the same way, right? Here's the standard. Did you keep it? That's all it's doing. And so whatever law we give, whatever law we talk about, in the end... Because we're sinners, we've all broken all of them in some way or another, either in our actions or our words or in our thoughts. Okay? 
Any limits that we place on Paul's words here, I think, are missing his point. He is intentionally trying to be comprehensive. And so, especially those of us who like to keep the rules, this is something that we have to come to terms with. Because those of us who like to keep the rules really struggle with this idea. Those of us who are more, uh, you know, the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law kind of people, um, we have our own struggles to accept this truth. But whatever it is, whatever law we're talking about, no flesh is ever going to be justified before God because we don't obey perfectly. And so the law will never declare any descendant of Adam and Eve righteous and holy, not only because we are imperfect, but because the law was never designed to do that. Okay? <laughs> it cannot take a sinful person and declare them righteous. Like I said at the beginning, the scale is not going to help you lose weight. It can give you a number, and then your heart, right, some other power might motivate you to do something in, in accordance with what the scale is saying. The scale's not going to make you lose weight. <coughs> the mirror is not going to help your gray hairs go away. Okay? It has one job, just to reflect. This is what is there. <coughs> Excuse me. We may say... Um, Something other than the mirror is saying, we may twist, twist the message to make ourselves feel better. <coughs> Excuse me, but like the law, all it is is saying, here's the standard. Hey, like it or not. <laughs> and so again, the law is telling us to be righteous. It is showing us to be unrighteous. And that's all it can do. Let's turn a moment to Romans 7. Paul is going to greatly expand on some of these thoughts. <clears throat> and in Romans 7, let's begin in verse 7. <clears throat> Notice what he says here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, is the law a problem? Is there something wrong with it? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, right? See the connection with chapter 3, verse 20. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. And you see the problem. It's not the law. The law says, don't covet. I'm the problem. My sinful heart, sin within me is the problem. It creates in me all kinds of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, I'll have to explain what all he means by that later. <clears throat> Verse 10, And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The commandment brings life to someone who is righteous, you might say, to Adam and Eve before they fell but not to anyone after that. So verse 11, For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, 
and the commandment holy, just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. God's law has always been in existence because it's based on who he is. God made that law uh, known to Adam and Eve, but then it became codified under Moses. It's nothing essentially different. It's always been that way. But once it's written down, then we say, oh, okay, here's the standard, and I'm not keeping it. But again, that, that standard, the law, is not the problem. I am. So <clears throat> certainly Paul will say more about this. But here's our basic point. Now, so since we are all unrighteous, all the law can do is expose our sinfulness. There is no other message, even now for us who have new hearts. Okay? The law is calling us to do rightly, but it's also pointing out where we are not. The law is impersonal in this way. Okay. So, when you feel good about your obedience, it's only because you're not listening to the law. Okay? If you think you're keeping the standard pretty well, it's because you've either changed the standard or you've shoved cotton balls in your ears. You're not listening to what the law is saying. Okay. The only way we can feel good about the law of God and about ourselves is due to what Christ has done in our place. That is the only way we can feel good about our obedience. That is the only way that we can receive any blessings for our righteous behavior. Because none of our righteous behavior is perfect. It is only through Christ. So let me have us look at a couple of things here. If you turn to chapter 2 here in Romans. Remember Paul's words in chapter 2 verse 13. He said, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, that's the principle, but no one has done it. And that's what Paul tells us here in Romans 3, verse 20. If you turn to Galatians here a moment, in chapter 2. Galatians 2, this is what many people have considered the theme verse of the book of Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, we might say, who has obeyed, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Saying the same exact thing as we're seeing here in Romans. So then if we turn to Philippians 3 that we read earlier. Paul is uh, uh, speaking about those who are trying to have confidence in their law keeping. 
in the flesh, as he says. He's like, well, if you're going to do that, then I'm at the top of the list. If we're going to try to say, okay, whoever has kept the law best, they're the ones who are going to get into heaven. Well, I'm right up there, guys. Look at all that I've done. And he spells that out in verses 5 and 6. Paul is one of the most righteous people externally that has ever lived. But then verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, right? Christ's righteousness for me that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death and so on and so forth here. <clears throat> We're going to sing here in just a moment the line, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Okay. This is our only hope to feel good about our righteousness. Okay. It is only by holding on to the perfect sacrifice in our place. Okay. Let me read again here from uh, John Stott. And first of all, he quotes from Martin Luther, who says this, The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so come to that blessed seed, which is Christ. And then Stott says, In conclusion, how should we respond to Paul's devastating exposure of universal sin and guilt, as we read it at the end of the 20th century, and of course now the 21st? We should not try to evade it by changing the subject, and talking instead of the need for self-esteem or by blaming our behavior on our genes, nurturing, education, or society, okay, or our skin color, or being an oppressed people group or something. It is an essential part of our dignity as human beings that however much we may have been affected by negative influences, we are not their helpless victims, but rather responsible for our own conduct. Our first response to God's indi uh, Paul's indictment then should be to make it as certain as possible, uh, as we possibly can, sorry, that we have ourselves accepted this divine diagnosis of our human condition as true and that we have fled from the just judgment of God on our sins to the only refuge there is, namely Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. For we have no merit to plead and no excuse to make. We too stand before God speechless and condemned. Only then shall we be ready to hear the great but now of verse 21. As Paul began to explain how God has intervened through Christ and his cross for our salvation. Well, we have now come to the conclusion of Paul's 64 verses here. Taking roughly six and a half months of sermons to cover it. Okay. Now we'll be ready to hear this message of grace, this message of hope. 
But I leave you with one last challenging question. Have you been impatient to get to chapter 3, verse 21? If so, maybe you're not yet ready to hear its message. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does not allow us to squirm away from what it is speaking to us. Lord, we, um, we do pray that this um, rather hard and difficult message would be heard by everyone here. That none of us would um, persevere in objecting that none of us would stop up our ears, that none of us would change the standard to make ourselves feel better, or change you even. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your word according to the message that is intended, that we might look to you in faith through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for your mercies on each one here in this way. And uh, as we <clears throat> conclude this message, and we'll begin the next, we pray, Lord, for your, um, uh, your mercies to uh, be poured out upon us, and that you would then grow your church here in these ways. We pray then in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.